Yeah, that was golden. I love I it. I like simplicity and I like it to be very couples clean. All acted very simple. The matching couples. Oh my lord, I hate the matching couples. Yeah, I'm like, yeah, I think I'm attracted to normal looking women. Right, but that's not accurate. You have weird taste. Those are all things that most of us could really improve on. It's gonna, it's gonna vary wildly if anyone listens at all. That's what I call interesting. No real substance? That's super interesting. Fascinating almost. Welcome to While We're on the Subject, where we talk about what we talk about. Now, here's the show. Hi, Mike. Hey, John. What's on your mind this week? You know, I have a job, as I'm sure I've mentioned before once or twice. I do know, yes. And it's cool. I don't love it. I've realized that the particular field isn't for me. I don't think you're alone there. Yeah. And I mean, I don't mind the work itself. I just don't care about real estate. So Sure, yeah. And so I was I was thinking, because not necessarily in this context, because, you know, like the, the work itself is something that I find pretty interesting and I'm okay at and I don't I don't mind doing it. Yeah, it's not but the tasks, thinking, it's a subject matter. Right. But I was thinking, if there are careers that people are interested in, but they know don't suit them. And so hmm. I had a question for you, John. Yeah. Are there any careers that you've thought about that you think that you'd like to do, but you know wouldn't suit you? Maybe something you just don't think your personality would mesh well with, or the task would be something that maybe you wouldn't be able to keep up with, or would be too easy, or any reason why there's something out there that you know you just couldn't do, despite the fact that you might be interested in it. Yeah. So the first thing that comes to mind, which I don't think is going to be my answer, is teaching. I've been a teacher. I've worked as a teacher. Uh-huh. And it's certainly something that is doable. Education is something that I find fascinating. Uh-huh. But I think if I was trying to do that for my career long term, it would be mind numbing is not the right word, but just frustratingly stagnant. I don't think I could work in a position where I would be honing the same set of skills, working with the same knowledge base for decades and not be in a position to expand it. But I think the job that fits into this best that I really am interested in and I'm always tempted by is uh-huh. being a journalist. Okay. So why can't John be a journalist? You know, it, it's it's a good question as to exactly why. I can't put my finger on exactly why. I don't think I would be good at it. But I think the whole like sleuthing, the whole really digging into things, like an investigative uh-huh. reporter right. or something like that, I just don't think... I would be very good at that. Like, I, I think research I'm perfectly good at. Learning uh-huh. I'm perfectly good at. Paying attention to things and thinking about things I'm good at. So maybe I could be a columnist or something like that. Right. But a real reporter, I just don't think I would be able to combatively interview people and pursue sources and check sources and do all of that like groundwork. I think that uh-huh. would be difficult for me. Um, and I always, I'm always like reading The Economist and seeing okay. their posted advertisements in, in the magazine for different positions that they have for different writers and different reporter positions and things. And I'm always tempted to apply for various things, but uh, mm-hmm. I, I know that that would not be, <laughs> I just don't think it would be good. I really seriously considered applying to some things at The Economist a few years back uh-huh. because I was like, you know, these are things I'm interested in. These are things that I think about. Why not? But yeah, I don't think I would be very well suited to it. What about you? Are there any careers that you're interested in, but woefully incapable of? When I was a kid, like most kids, I kind of liked the idea of being like a police officer. Okay. 
you know? Sure. And as an it's adult, not uncommon. at some point, I was kind of considering the responsibilities of a police officer, right? Yeah. So I was just thinking about it. I'm not interested in being a police officer. But I realized that that is just not a job that I could do. It's mm. dealing with people in like a way that makes you unpopular. You're already yeah. disliked, generally. A lot of decision-making that just seems... It just seems hard to make the right choice in hard situations. There's a lot of bad options, sure. Especially when you have a gun. Yeah, I would would not like being a police officer. Because I know, I know that I would shoot someone who didn't deserve to get shot. (laughs) Not out of like spite or malice. I just know that I would panic just once and I would shoot someone and I know that it wouldn't be their fault. And it was just because I didn't know how to handle the situation. I was all like, this will make everything easier. And that idea freaks me out. Yeah, that's not a response you want in your police officers. I remember somebody was like, oh, you look like a cop. And I was like, what? And then it made me think about my childhood desire to be a police officer. And then the reality that if I were a cop, I would definitely kill someone or at least shoot them. Yeah, see, that has the same problem that I would have with being a teacher where it seems like at least for kind of a beat level cop or even a detective, Mm -hmm. they're doing the same thing year after year after year but it's simultaneously not interesting and dangerous so it's stressful and not interesting which is just the worst of things it's like taxes you everyone stresses over taxes and it's just bores them out of their minds and it's like that's not what you want in life like that's the worst of all worlds that's fair i'm not going to disagree with you there at least firemen have like an exciting job you know what i mean that's true and it varies they're not only ever just fighting fires and people love firefighters true they are probably the most popular public servants police officers tend uh, to have some public image yeah, issues one of the least popular i remember i was talking to a friend of mine about how cool i thought firefighters were and mm. i guess without realizing it i guess i inspired them to pursue a career in firefighting nicely done yeah because i was just like they're so great everyone loves them they have a cool job they get paid well, et cetera, et cetera. And I, I never made the connection. And I was just talking to him one day about it. And he was just like, what made you want to be a firefighter? And he was like, oh, yeah, because you were talking about it once. And it sounded really cool. I wanted to be a firefighter. Sounds like a really easily influenced person. That's, <laughs> that is something. Yeah, yeah, no, that's also a job I don't think I would want. Although I've thought about it. And like one of the reasons that I went to go teach in Korea was because I knew mm-hmm. that there was so much on the job time that I could use for personal development and focusing on other things. Right. They gave you dramatically too much time to prepare for classes. So there was a lot of time Mm -hmm. to do other things. And fireman is like the epitome of that. Most of the time that you're on call, you're just chilling. And it's like, that's perfect time to do anything else, to learn stuff, to study, to Mm -hmm. do everything. And yeah, that's, uh, that, that is an upside, but yeah, I don't think I would be into that at all either. Mm Mm-hmm. And I think another one, too, that I was thinking about recently, just, just since I started my job, yeah, is we have a lot of contractors, handyman, okay. I don't know, remodeling companies. I don't know what you would call them. But I would imagine that their job is pretty lucrative. I mean, I don't have to imagine. I know. I, I look at their estimates and their invoices, sure, yeah. and <laughs> these guys make a lot of money doing yeah. this. And I was all like, man, that'd be a cool job. But the reality is I don't think I would like to do any manual labor. It's hard. I'm lazy. I'll hurt my hands. <laughs> See, I think manual labor would be rewarding. Like, I think doing something like construction, where you can see the physical manifestation of your labor in the world, I think that is a rewarding thing. Oh no! I mean, I don't disagree with that line of thought at all. But just not for you. 
yeah, just not for me. Okay. See, if they didn't pay so poorly compared to intellectual pursuits, if they, if they were more rewarding in terms of growth and learning and thinking, like they're, they're too intellectually uninteresting for me to pursue. But I think mm. if they were more intellectually interesting, I think something like carpentry, something like house building, anything like that would be quite interesting. I, I think I could get yeah. into that. I mean, I know some of these guys do really well. Yeah. I mean, especially if you own the business, I'd imagine really, really lucrative. But man, I can't imagine painting an entire house. Like, I don't know how long that would take, but it seems monotonous and it seems boring. Hugely monotonous, yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of vendors whose specialty is just painting. That's what they do. That's their career. They sit in front of a wall and they coat it. I mean, if you had some good podcasts or something, you know, you could cruise through. Maybe, but it would then make you, time fly much better. But, but you'd have still to be pretty in the hot sun. I don't know. I was thinking about them like these. These are great. Like just looking at it with the right connections, it's an extremely lucrative job. These guys make a ton of money just from us, and I'm sure that we're not the ones that they exclusively work with. Mm. So I'd have to imagine that their entire clientele is, makes it worth what they do. That surprises me that painters are as well paid as your making it seem oh man they charge so much it's really easily one of the most expensive things anyone charges for hmm. but like is it a lot on a per hour basis i would have to imagine so because it's easily one of the most expensive things okay when you know we have like general contractors who do everything yeah. repair electrical and do the painting when we have to fix the inside of a house or the outside of a house and so they, sure. they give us estimates to do a lot of things painting is easily one of the most expensive things okay yeah I guess I was just thinking because painting takes so long to like paint an entire house. Maybe like if, if you're just looking at the cost of the contracts, maybe the contracts are expensive, but because houses are so large and painting takes so long, the per hour per laborer price is not actually that good. But yeah, I mean, it, there are always things like that that surprise you. Like yeah. I remember when I was first shocked that plumbers who seem kind of low on the totem pole in terms of skilled laborers could sometimes bring home like a quarter of a million dollars as their salary. Like they can get paid bank if they're doing well for themselves. And it's, uh, yeah, it, it surprises you when you first hear about it. Yeah. Cause th- those guys make a ton of money. I was looking through some of our work histories mm-hmm. just to see, cause we have like a primary plumber that we use. Okay. Let's say in the last three months, we've used them close to a thousand times. Sure. I mean, they're doing a lot of stuff. They're replacing water heaters. They're fixing furnaces. Yeah, they're they're, doing all that plumbery stuff. Yeah, and it's hundreds of dollars. Hundreds and hundreds of dollars. Yeah. And it's not always the case, right? Sometimes it's just like 50 bucks here, 100 bucks there. But if you think about how much they're actually making, like as a single person, as a plumber, like he's not making that much because like if you're talking about driving out to a house, replacing a water heater or fixing a water heater or something for 100 bucks and then driving someplace else like the whole process probably takes you two hours and you're making a hundred bucks you know what i mean like you know it's another one that's crazy i know that we're getting a little off topic with this but heating and air Mm. they charge like a hundred bucks an hour yeah it is crazy when you see supply and demand kick in when there are a limited number of people that have certain skills you really do see prices just get jacked up like that yeah and i would say that that's easily the most expensive vendor that we have is that one number one number one the most expensive one out of all of them Hmm. people that do heating and air. Well, yeah, I never even think about it because I've never had to deal with any of these things. And it is funny because you can definitely get these sorts of things much cheaper if you're going for bargain basement, but you always see it with actual businesses. 
like the company you work for, they have standing business relationships with these people. They need them to be reliable. They need them to be consistent. They need them to come through mm -hmm. in a pinch. And so yeah. they're probably paying substantially more than what they would have to, but it's just a better business arrangement to have. To be fair, a lot of our vendors provide us discounts because we give them so much work. Mm. And so a lot of the time, the prices are a lot lower than they might ordinarily be. But I still guarantee you they're higher than the cheapest options out there for like oh, a one-off yeah, no. thing. Yeah. No, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. So, John, follow up. <laughs> yeah. Well, there was a little bit of follow up. So, I was listening to a podcast this last week. It's Radio Lab, super famous. I'll put it in the show notes. They're great. And they talk about all sorts of random things. And this was actually a follow up podcast for them, following up on a story they did years ago. And they were talking about how we perceive light, right? And they were talking about comparing us to certain birds and comparing us to butterflies and comparing us to uh -huh. this one particularly strange animal called the mantis shrimp, right? Uh, yes, the mantis shrimp. And the mantis shrimp is this weird, strange shrimp that lives on coral reefs, I think. And it basically propels itself around and like headbutts things and just moves at high speeds. Like you can break some aquarium walls and things with it. Like it's, it's very wow. bizarre. They're super colorful. Got big, like googly eyes. Do you think they taste good? I mean, they're probably, the same they probably taste like shrimp. shrimp. Yeah. I don't know. Probably, you know, I mean, you'd think like a superior shrimp would taste different. Well, I don't, I'm not sure that it's a superior shrimp. It's just different, right? Like sounds I mean, mantis shrimps, apparently there are 500 or so species of them. So it's not like we're talking about one particular species even within the ah, subgroup. Wow. But the thing that was interesting to me as I was listening mm -hmm. to this and the thing that made me think back to one of our previous conversations was the genetic engineering implications of this, right? So we discussed genetic engineering a couple weeks ago, I think, and the prospects of it. And I remember thinking about the fact that we only really talked about enhancing people right. within kind of the realm of what we think of as normal humans, right? So we talked about making people uh -huh. faster or making people taller right. or giving them certain color hair. And I think that's what people often go to with genetic engineering. But one of the reasons that I think that genetic engineering is such a essential future path for humans uh -huh. is because of things like what you see with butterflies and the mantis shrimp. Like they can see colors like ultraviolet and things that we can't see. And right. humans are almost certainly not even close. That's a spectrum, not color. Ultraviolet, I'm pretty sure that's a spectrum, not color, but I got you. Sure, but you could say red is a spectrum as well, right? Every color is a spectrum, but we only see certain colors. I mean, that's one way to phrase it, I suppose. You know what? I'll give it to you, John. Like every particular wavelength is a different color, but we yeah. don't see every different wavelength as a color. We can only, as humans, see three colors. Oh. Vertebrates generally can only see three. But I think an important thing to think about when you're thinking about the potentials for genetic engineering and why it is so important and why it will be so valuable is because we are the product of billions of years of evolution. But evolution is this randomized process. And if you're talking about engineering it to provide us additional capabilities that mm -hmm. we don't currently have. Like you look at butterflies, they can see things in between the colors we can see. They can distinguish. They can see things further down on the reds. They can see things further up into the ultraviolets. And that is where humans would want to go. They would want to, I think, take on capabilities that we don't currently have. 
some things that we can't even necessarily imagine right now, but resistance to radiation. We're talking about being able to fly. I mean, there's no reason that we wouldn't be able to survive in a much higher carbon dioxide environment or like the idea that we are anywhere close to what is optimal evolutionarily. Like one of the things that we talked about when we were talking about uh-huh. this, we talked about trade-offs, right? And how, like, when you compare us to things like chimpanzees, we've lost right. so much strength but gained so much in terms of brain size and intelligence, right? Right. But one of the fascinating things that I was thinking about is that one of our big problems in society now is obesity. Uh-huh. And a lot of the speculation around why we have this trade-off is because our brains use so much energy. But now right. that we have the capacity to consume so dramatically much more energy than we ever could have before... We could potentially create an environment for ourselves where we can put to use all of that energy to be much stronger, to be much bigger and much smarter. And so Uh I think the potential for going into areas that are not even remotely recognizable as human, I think is a huge potential for genetic engineering. And it's something that we didn't really touch on. And that's actually fascinating because um, it makes me think of this thing, I believe it's called the tardigrade. Okay. It's known as the, I think they call it the water bear. It's like this small microscopic nice, that's a good name. organism that gets tested due to its like insane invulnerability. It could survive in the hottest temperatures and the coldest temperatures. I think they've released it into the vacuum of space. Okay. And then brought it back and it was still alive. Okay. So it's like one right, of those extremophiles which, or what have you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. And so I, I thought it was interesting that they were studying it. And I don't know, now that you brought that up, I'm just like, that seems like something probably a lot of intelligent scientists, if genetic engineering became a thing tomorrow, would look at it and try to like find what causes those and want to... Try to figure out how to use those traits. Yeah. Yeah, and apply them to themselves. Put those traits into the things, yeah. yeah. And you see that with a lot of foods that were genetically engineering and things like that, that you know, you're making them resistant to certain things, you're causing them to grow much faster or more efficiently. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that's obviously something that we would want. And we would want, at least initially probably, you're right, to take useful traits from other living creatures. But long term, we could potentially engineer traits that don't exist anywhere, but are useful to us. And I think a lot of people maybe worship or at least respect the human form as it is, right? Mm -hmm. But as much as that is the case, I think it's hard for someone to make an argument that everything that exists in human nature is valuable. Like there are a lot of things that we see all the time where we have instincts or we have tendencies toward Mm -hmm. destructive behavior or toward counterproductive behavior or irrationality and those things while they are innate to us they're not Mm -hmm. necessarily things that we want and so if we could eliminate some of those negative ramifications of evolution like we talk about stress right right people are terrified of public speaking and they have all of this stress around it and this is due to an evolutionary response right and stress is an evolutionary response and eliminating that or changing it in some way so that it's not as detrimental to people's life makes perfect sense in the long run. Mm -hmm. And I just wanted to touch back on the genetic engineering because... You get so excited about this, John. I stopped contributing. Sure, yeah. And just started listening to you talk about this because I'm just like, yeah, 
that's the future. We got to start genetic engineering now, right now. Let's throw some people who no one will care about into a lab and see what we can do with them. I still think caution is essential, and it's extremely right. dangerous. But no, but like, I'm sold. That's what I'm saying. The you're, potential you're all about caution. I'm about to throw it to the wind. <laughs> there's, there's a lot of people like, I'm sure that wouldn't mind getting tested on. Yeah, but creating <laughs> new things in the world could potentially be destructive in a large way, also. So it, it yeah. caution caution is necessary. Like we can create right. traits in people that then, when they have sex with other people, get spread around to the whole populace. No eventually causing right. mass devastation. But that being said, mm -hmm. this is so clearly the biggest way that we could improve ourselves and improve society right. that it's it is the biggest future possibility for advancing yeah, society and civilization. Yeah. And it's yeah. if you guys could see his face right now the way I could, he he's just lighting up like it's Christmas talking about this. It's pretty funny. It's yeah. huge. It it will be transformational in the way that nothing since like agriculture has been and i right. eagerly await it and i'm somewhat terrified of it but yeah it's it's exciting yeah now the way you're talking about it i just, just want to write like a sci-fi book about it you know do it man i'll read it well maybe no you probably won't <laughs> yeah like you know one of those brave new world sort of deals mm. would it be as pessimistic as brave new world i don't know i haven't gotten there i just <laughs> okay just heard you talking about it and it just it just sounds like something that someone should write a book about yeah i really think it warrants a lot more attention than it gets and i mean just recently i think canada uh -huh. officially made legal the selling of genetically modified animals i think oh. it was a chicken i want to say or something like that uh -huh. but like it's the first actually like gmo animal that you can consume and the U.S. still hasn't allowed any GMO animals. Obviously, we have GMO plants. Europe right. tends to be against all of it. But it's moving down the line. I read recently, for no reason, Barbara Streisand's clone dogs. Like, this is this is coming. What? And it's coming. Yeah, she has two clone Barbara's dogs. Oh, that's, that's pretty yeah. neat. Apparently, yeah. there's some company in Texas, I think, that will, like, clone people's pets, like, rich people's pets. But my point is that this is coming and it's coming in an accelerated way and i don't think it gets nearly as much attention as it needs because it, people really need to think about the problems that arise here and figure right. out ways to solve them because the faster we can move down this path safely the better it is for society hmm. okay yeah okay just really quickly yeah what do they modify in the chicken well i don't even remember if it was chicken darn it because i'm sure there's a good reason for why they modify it. I'm just curious as to what it is exactly that they, they're modifying in the chicken. Oh, sorry. Sorry. It was not chicken. It was salmon. Oh, okay. Yeah. This was, I don't know, six months ago, seven months ago, oh. something like that. But see, the very fact that it wasn't a huge thing for most people, the fact that now there are GM animals out there and that people mm -hmm. are just cloning pets with no issue, no problem, no qualms. And the fact that we've started using genetic engineering in humans, like you see it in China, you see mitochondrial transplants in the UK, the use of CRISPR is accelerating all of this hugely. Uh -huh. it, it's something that I am watching very closely, and I think everyone should be. I think this is definitely going to come up all the time, at least in another 800 episodes that we're definitely going to record. Yeah, I think 800 <laughs> is the target number, right? Yeah. yeah. Like that's, that's the over-under that I put a bet on. <laughs> When we started. Oh, really? Nice. No, oh. God. 800, that seems a bit high to me. Like, think about if we keep doing it weekly, how long we would have to record the show to get to 800. Like, you're talking Just about... Just like 10, 15, Another 15 years? 20, yeah. 
Yeah. 15, that's easy. Easy. Yeah, you know, easy money, no problem. Yeah, I've known you for 15 years. <laughs> right, yeah. We're, we're halfway sure, through our relationship. Yeah, I'm sure I could talk to you for another 15 years. Oh, yeah, no problem. I'm just not sure I want to do it in podcast form for the next 15 years. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah, we're going to move up to television. Oh, absolutely. Talk show. Yeah, yeah. no doubt. The Michael and John Hour with Michael and John. <laughs> It'll be fun. So, me and John like to ring things. Something we do all the time. I love it. He loves it. We talked about it a little bit before when we were ranking presidents and yeah. terrible times in history and whatnot. Yeah, we did. We mentioned it slightly. That's true. We even have like a little segment that I'm sure will come back time and again where we rank things. Undoubtedly. By the time we get to episode 800. Yeah. So we just want to talk a little bit about why we rank things. Yeah. So why do you rank things, Michael? Because... Some things are just better than other things. Okay. Well, I mean, maybe not necessarily some things are better than other things, but it definitely helps you kind of see what attributes people have mm. and sort of which ones might be preferable to others. So, like, if these two people did a great thing, yeah, it just helps me break down what things they did and which ones I value more than others. And so it helps me sort of distinguish not only what I think they've contributed Mm -hmm. but personally what i find most valuable yeah i think that that is a good thing to think about the fact that like it it, because you're absolutely right it allows you to distinguish the value that you ascribe to various things which is useful but i I think it's a little bit more fundamental than that for me like we've Uh talked about on previous shows how change is essential for perception right everything that Mm -hmm. you perceive right is basically due to the fact that it's changed in some way and Mm -hmm. The other component that is essential for perception, or at least for thinking, right. is comparing things, right? Okay. All right. Like that's okay. how... I see what you're saying. That's how... Yeah, that's how you identify what a thing is based upon what you are distinguishing it from. Like, what is a couch? What is a chair? How are they different? The only way that you can identify those as two different things is by comparing them. And that's the only way that you can discuss or identify anything. And I think ranking things is just a manifestation of that tendency toward comparing things. And for me, like its function in terms of conversation and socially is Uh it allows you to quickly communicate with somebody and to see if you're on the same wavelength with them, to see if you're on the same page in terms of your opinions. Like if you're talking about, let's just say movies, and you talk about your top five movies or you rank three different movies like let's say you're ranking star wars movies and you put them uh-huh. in order of your favorite to your least favorite like you can see if they put episode two at their favorite movie you're not in the that, same page they because... probably don't have good taste <laughs> well sure i mean i feel i feel like it not only tells you what kind of opinions you guys may share or not share but it kind of also gives an insight into their taste it does but it, it brings up it kind of very quickly pinpoints points of disagreement and things that can be discussed which in turn lets you rank them among people you know (laughs) sure but like when we were ranking presidents right the fact that i mean i guess we ended up not actually ranking the best presidents we were more ranking underrated presidents but Uh, yeah like that led to discussion because we were surprised by the other person's results and it allows you to put things in order in the world like Mm. comparing things to one another is how you order the world around you this endless differentiation and endless 
randomness that you are surrounded by, you put it in order by naming things and by ordering things. And ranking is just part just of that. Just essential yeah. to that. All right. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. So when you rank things, mm -hmm. do you do it kind of automatically? Do you know mm -hmm. what I mean? Because I sometimes find myself, as I'm thinking about, like, let, let's say I'm thinking about a city. Right. I immediately start comparing it to other cities and comparing aspects of it that I'm thinking about. Like, let's say I'm thinking about Rome okay. and the fact that Rome's really hot. I'm immediately comparing right. it to the weather in other cities and not only which one's, like, hotter or colder or what have you, but which one's... I like better. I do that almost without thinking about it because I've done it so often for so long. It's just automatic. Oh, for me, it's generally more like if I'm at a new place, I don't make any comparisons. I just take in the experience. And then from there, what I like about it, I immediately compare to what I like about other places. Okay. And then from there, I start thinking about the things I didn't like and comparing it to the things I don't like about other places. Sure. And then I come to like a more concrete ranking. It's never. It's not like an automatic thing. It's sort of like, I have to experience this mm. for what it is. And then after I've experienced it, then I can put it in a place that it belongs for me. Yeah, okay. That makes sense. I will say, I think it uh, moderates my opinions quite a bit because right. when I go through that same process that you just described and I uh -huh. say, oh God, I really don't like whatever just happened. I just right. rode in a car and I was like, man, this car was terrible. As soon as I start comparing <laughs> it, I'm like, well, it's not actually, it's it's not as bad as pt cruiser or it's not as bad right. as some other yeah. car that i hated riding in right it's not as bad i will as admit that i do do that's that's maybe where i'm more likely to do like an immediate ranking is if there's a really bad experience i have i always go well it's not as bad as this experience or yeah oh my yeah. god it was even worse than this i don't even know sure, how it's sure. possible that it could be worse than that in that regard i suppose that i do do immediate rankings i go well it's bad but it's not that bad but generally if it's just something that's happening if it's neutral or good, I don't mm -hmm. really think about it until much later when, when somebody maybe asks my opinion about it mm. and then I start thinking about it versus other places. Sure. So something that happens to me a lot, and I wonder if this happens to you, is I get almost chastised for ranking things, I guess. Like I get into conversations with people who just don't do this at all, which I find somewhat hard to fathom. Mm -hmm. But I get into conversations and I sometimes go to ask them if we're talking about music and I'm like, what are some of your favorite songs? What are your top right. five songs or something like that? Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. so often I'll get these responses where they're just like, I don't know, like I don't rank things. And they just get frustrated or annoyed with me for even asking. Like, do you right. often find that people are not particularly appreciative of your ranking of things? Sometimes. If someone talks about something that they enjoy yeah. and I'm familiar with it and I enjoy it too, but I think there's a handful of better things. I'll be like, well, yeah, it's like, okay, but have you tried this, 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 and this? Have you watched this, 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 and this? Have you read this, this, and this? Because it's better than that. Yeah. And then they'll be like, but no, I love this. And I'm like, yeah, me too. But it's not as good. You understand? <laughs> this is better. Sure. And so sometimes I think people will be like, my thing doesn't suck. It's good. And I'm like, yeah, no, no, I understand what you're saying. And I, I might come off as... Uh, patronizing maybe i don't know <laughs> sure yeah i could see that yeah. yeah yeah it's like yeah yeah no that is good now now here's something that's that's better for you <laughs> read it 
taste it. And so I, I, I think I do that a lot too. Yeah, I could see that. That would definitely get people to resent Or you. even with things that I'm not especially familiar with, but I've heard about it, I'd be like, oh yeah, that reminds me of this thing. That's better. You should look at this. I've, I've heard it's even better than that thing. And they're basically the same thing. So I, I, I do that a lot. I just mm. spend a lot of time telling people that the thing they like is not as good as this other thing. So just one other question I was wondering, because this is something okay. that I get more blowback on than almost anything else in terms of ranking things. Uh, so you talked about ranking people a moment ago. Do you rank like your personal relationships, your friendships? Oh, your... yeah. Okay. Definitely. I do How that. do you go about that? Because that's something that most people I don't think do. I do it as well. But how do you go about it? Or why do you do it? That one's just so subjective because it's based on, oh, who do I find more pleasant? Like, who do I like more? Okay. Because, you so know, you don't, like all your fr- like, you don't like all your friends the same. But some people I like more aren't necessarily more interesting or I have as much in common with. And so sometimes people who I don't like as much, I just have a better time socializing with. And so that'll play an impact on it as well. Okay. And then maybe the type of relationship we have will also affect the ring. Okay. Because I have some friends who are pretty superficial, who I like a lot, but I'm just kind of like, you're cool, but I don't really care about you the way I care about these people. So you give them kind of an overall score. Yeah, for where they yeah, sit yeah. on the friend hierarchy. Okay, see, I, I do something yeah. quite different. I guess I don't compare my relationships very much. Like, because as we've, as we've discussed before, like I try to identify the very specific value that I get from this relationship, right? Right. And that's what I go to this person for. So I don't necessarily need to rank them in a holistic sense. Oh. The way that I tend to rank relationships is, basically it's just how willing would i be to stop being friends with this person or stop having them around me ah okay i see right so it's kind of all boiled Uh down to if i could only keep three friendships which ones would they be so that gives you your top three you know what i mean like okay i mean because people bring specific value that is not very comparable i guess i don't know well because generally i try to test everything of this person oh can i talk to them about this can i talk to them about that can i do this with them can i do that with them you know, sort of like... But why? I don't know. Why not? Well, because... Okay. Well, because some people, you know them kind of, like, to a certain extent, right? Yeah. And so I'm just trying to find out, like, how far I can push the friendship. Is there more that I can offer, that you can offer? Is there some sort of... Some additional value to be had. Yeah, some quality that you have mm. that maybe I didn't know was valuable, and it might be more valuable than this person who has the same quality that I've... You yeah, know, I, I mean, to, I could certainly see yeah. that, trying to deepen the friendship yeah. by trying new and different things. Yeah. I guess what I'm more thinking about is that when I find that someone either isn't very good at something or I don't like certain things about them or we don't tend to do a certain thing together, I just mm-hmm. accept that and mark that down as something that we're never going to do together. And that's fine. Uh. And then but I see, don't worry about that anymore. Uh, I'd like to just at least try it once. No, no. Well, yeah, yeah, sure. But I would mark it down once I try it, I guess. Once I see that it's not a thing that we're going to do. Uh, I guess that makes sense. But yeah, I don't know what it is about ranking things, but it's just fun. It's fun to be like, oh, you think this is number one? I think that's number one. Not even the conversation that it like spurs. Just, just being able to tell people, eh, no, my thing. Yeah, it gives you something kind of mundane and pointless to argue about that's completely subjective. Like, I think the conversation that comes out of it is half the fun. You you get to argue about things in a way that is basically just practicing arguing because there's no real convincing somebody else that 
that food is better or something. And I think it lets you argue with people without alienating anyone. A lot of topics can be difficult to talk about if you don't agree about them. Yeah, I'm not sure. I think people can still get alienated. But it does make it very much, it's my opinion. It's very lighthearted. I mean, it's not always, though. Like, sometimes it's it's really not. It I mean, definitely is very much my opinion. Really? Not so intense that people were just like, you know what? I, I got to go. I can't talk to you for a couple of days, you know? <laughs> well, I don't know. Like, it can lead to things. I was like, sure if you're talking about who your favorite friends are and they're not on the list, oh, like, that's going to... I would never you know. talk about that. But also people know. <laughs> okay. You know, I don't think I hide my feelings. I think people get a general idea of who my preferred friends are. Sure. I'm just saying these things can be emotional. They can get a rise out of people. Like if you're talking right. about your favorite presidents and Nixon was your number one, that's going to get a rise out of people. I guess that's fair. Like, <laughs> it's, I it's mean, not... yeah, it depends on how deep you go. I guess that's true. Yeah. You're right. You're right. It is good because it's so obviously and intentionally subjective that it's not ever yeah. going to be like you're saying this is fact that your stuff is terrible and it would my stuff definitely is right. be hard to hold that against someone how yeah. dare you have an opinion exactly kind of person are you i mean if you did it would just make you look like a butt face sure yeah well i'm not allowed to curse so you can curse i'll just bleep it no butt face is funnier so john i think there is something that you wanted to talk about with regards to limitation spurring creativity and i just i wanted to get your thoughts on this yeah so often people chafe somewhat under the limitations in their lives and you see things like underdog stories where people overcame great adversity and Uh were extremely successful and something that i've come across a few times and i think about quite regularly is the advantages of placing arbitrary restrictions or limits on things and how by limiting what you are allowed to do in certain respects it uh-huh. can push you to be creative and push you toward potentially solutions that you would have never come up with and better solutions than you would have come up with without the restrictions so to give a tangible example of this mm-hmm. you have cooking and a lot of people just cook with whatever ingredients they want but i see things with vegetarians or with vegans, where sometimes they come up with just incredibly good creative foods that I would have never thought about. And I don't think anybody that would actually be using meat would think about. And they're not necessarily better than foods with meat, but they are this new creative thing. Like I had an eggplant lasagna the other day. Oh, really? My girlfriend made it and it was superb. And it wasn't something that I think she would have ever thought about making if she hadn't been trying to make something that was vegetarian. Hmm. So those sorts of restrictions can often drive you in a more creative way. I've often thought about this in terms of poetry. Okay. When you look at things like sonnets, when you look at things like any kind of poetry, essentially. Right. You are placing arbitrary limits on what you're writing. Ah. And it forces you to force whatever ideas that you have to curtail them and condense them down into something that's concise and fits a certain rhyme scheme or fits a certain length or line requirement. And that's why I think poetry can be so powerful because process of compression and Uh adding pressure, it creates a new thing that would have Uh, never been created if you could have just written a book. Diamond out of a coal or whatever. Yeah, exactly. Diamond out of carbon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, there we are. Whatever whatever they say, I forget. Well, yeah. If you compress coal enough, you do get diamonds. Yeah. 
Yeah. Okay. That's the thing. I never thought about it in that context either. Poetry. Yeah. I've always considered poetry to be kind of dull, but in that regard, I think it would make a lot of things I generally might not have cared about more interesting. I mean, when you're when you're talking about this, it's not so much about whether or not you enjoy poetry. It's about whether or not for the person well, no. creating it, they create something different and it, the limitations placed on it cause creativity to spurt out in directions you would have not come up with otherwise. Oh, no, I understood that. I just meant to say that that limitation, creating something that might not have otherwise existed without the limitation is, yeah. is pretty fascinating. Like it it makes something more interesting just in and of itself. Sure. While ordinarily people might be like, ew, eggplant lasagna or something. They'd be like, oh, wow, that's ingenuity right there. Maybe I'll try it. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, what it can do, I think if people looked at it through that perspective, it would make them appreciate other things that they might not necessarily think were valuable or interesting. Yeah. And I mean, if you look at like cooking and you say, okay, you have to cook something now and you have no access to meat in this case, or you look at it and you say you have no access to grains and anything Mm -hmm. like wheat and what have you, Right, like that's going to change what you do. And you're going to have to come up with weird creative solutions. And those creative solutions are things that you would have never figured out. And you see this all the time with engineering problems where people are building a building and there's something with the geology that is unexpected, or there's unusually strong wind coming from one direction in this building site or something like that. Mm -hmm. And they have to come up with creative solutions because of these strange limitations that have been placed upon them. And I think that especially if you're struggling as a creative person to come up with things, placing limitations like this can spur creativity in a way that you often don't find without the limitations. That's a little good piece of advice to have everybody. Yeah. If you're struggling. If you're struggling, it, it can be very useful. And so I, I want to illustrate this in a couple ways, okay? So the first thing is to to make this example a little bit clearer. There's something that's called the paralysis of choice, which essentially is this mm-hmm. idea that if you walk into a grocery store or something mm-hmm. like that, and you see, yeah. let's just say toothpaste, you see there's right. 500 different types of toothpaste. You can find yourself somewhat paralyzed, not knowing what toothpaste to choose because you're not limited. Right. Especially if a decision seems like it matters in some way. Uh-huh. It's hard to make choices like that. There is this additional stress and strain placed upon you. And when you're doing something that's creative, like you're doing something like writing mm-hmm. or painting or anything like that, right. you have literally no limits. You could write right. about anything in any form you want. And that... <laughs> is paralyzing. That is so hard to grapple with and overcome. And so what I have done and what I think just to to start out with some basic advice on this Mm -hmm. that can be useful is starting out if you're really just blanking and facing a wall and not (laughs) being able to come up with anything, put limitations on the length or put limitations on the topic or something like that. Like I, for those of you who are not aware, have been making YouTube videos for the last little while. I've now finished two, but the second one will be going up sometime before this podcast goes out. And one of the things that I've tried to do, at least with this most recent one, was really limit the length of the video and really limit the length of the script that I wrote, right? So initially I wrote almost 4,000 words 
for the okay. script. And the final script ended up being about 1300 words. And the goal was to get it down to about 1200. I didn't quite make that. But the idea is that by forcing yourself to make it so much shorter than you want it to be, it only allows the good stuff to remain. It really forces out all of the flaws. It forces out all of the wasted explanations. It forces out all of the fluff that is not necessary. Editing is a good tool. Oh, editing is, is huge. But my point is that by limiting yourself in that way, you fundamentally change what you're creating. And that can be quite useful. Oh, it definitely can. So have you ever tried this sort of thing, Mike? Mm, in writing, sometimes I'll have okay. an idea for a story mm. and I'll try to write it. If it's just something I can't get out or I don't know where to go with it, I'll try to change the format it's in. So okay. I don't especially like poetry, but sometimes I'll try to write things in like a poetry format just sure. to see if the idea is more solid that way. Or uh, I'll do a lot of things where I'll turn short stories into like flash fiction. That's what they call it. It's, it's instead of having like you know, 5,000 words, it's like 500 words. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's just making it much more concise. Right. Because sometimes it gets bogged down by a lot of necessary details or things that aren't relevant to the story. Yeah, exactly. And it forces me to think about things in, in a different context. Mm. You know, sometimes we're writing a short story and it's about an individual and Maybe that's not a very compelling story, but the setting is more compelling. So I'll break it down and create like a little blurb mm. about the place that might be a little more interesting than the story that I was writing about, or vice versa. Sure, yeah. Sometimes like that. At work, I do this too. I'm very limited in what I can do. Like I don't have a lot of decision-making power. Everything's yeah. up to like the discretion of the property owners and the discretion of the property supervisors who, you know, manage the properties for the owner. Sure. Yeah. yeah. And so a lot of times I have to find my way around problem. And so I've gotten pretty good at, it's not really super creative, but haggling, convincing people, like talking owners into things, just sort of the value of that, getting in contact with people, approving things, and then convincing the owners that the thing that I approved was absolutely necessary. Okay. You know what I mean? Like sometimes it's it's like an emergency and it needs to get done and it might not be absolutely necessary, but I don't know. I've gotten good at working around things. Yeah, you're absolutely right yeah. that this sort of thing, placing limits on yourself can be valuable outside of creative tasks as well. Like I know mm -hmm. people who with their email, they've said, I've got 20 minutes to deal with email every day. And that's all the time I'm going to allow for email. So they check it once in the morning or once in the evening or whenever they check it, and they have 20 minutes to go through it. And anything they don't get to, they don't get to. And it forces you into this sort of thing where you really have to work fast and make good decisions about what you're doing in order yeah. to be effective with this sort of thing. And obviously there are some jobs where you wouldn't be able to do this. But right. giving yourself time restrictions or like what you were talking about with the haggling, like just right. making a decision and dealing with the consequences after. You are placing limits on yourself that force you to get better at things. Like back when I worked in Korea, and to a lesser right. extent when I worked in China, and I was teaching, there would be times when I would decide with a class that for this material, I'm not going to prepare. I'm going to walk in and I'm going to, and I know this is probably going to sound a bit irresponsible, but <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just going to walk in and I'm going to figure it out as I go, right? And we've done it with this show, or I've mm -hmm. done it at a few times where you walk into the show with no preparation, with no planning. I did that today, wow. essentially, right? Today, I put all of the planning impetus on you and just uh, walked in true. completely blank. And that sort of thing, 
forces you to get better at dealing with a situation where you have certain limitations, where I didn't have mm-hmm. the preparation time, I didn't have the preparation notes right. and whatnot. So this episode went terribly awry. I apologize. <laughs> 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 no, but it's true. Also, it's forced me to become more organized. Mm. But not consciously. Like, I've just started noticing. Yeah. I mean, this is kind of a tangentially related aspect of this, that just Mm -hmm. putting yourself in situations that you're not comfortable, that you don't usually deal with, is valuable. Mm -hmm. You're dealing with things right now at work that you don't normally have to deal with, or you haven't previously had to deal with, and it's forced you to get more organized. Putting myself in a situation where I have to talk completely unprepared, completely, you know, off the cuff, that is something that I don't generally have to deal with in podcasts, and it's something that causes me to get better at certain things, like putting yourself in uncomfortable, difficult situations, like going up to public speak when you never speak publicly and you're uncomfortable with it. That puts you in a situation where you have to deal with it. You have to get better at it. And when you look at things like that, placing limits on yourself or like putting yourself in uncomfortable situations, and you see the growth that it creates in yourself, it's something that you start to seek out a little bit more, I think. And I think that's a good thing. I think it also makes people more comfortable with failure in those regards. True. Because, you know, limiting yourself is not always going to lead to a successful implementation of, of what it is that you're trying to get out of it. Undoubtedly true. Especially when you put time limits on it and you're like, okay, yeah. I have two hours to do this. That's all exactly. I'm giving it. And then uh, uh, it is what it is. Right. And so, you know, people are going to fail often doing things like that. And I think it'll make them more comfortable with the idea of failing. Like things aren't always going to go your way. Sure. It really allows for people to not only become more creative, but also more persistent mm, Yeah. in their pursuits. So be like, well, I mean, I failed that way, but there's other ways I can do this. Yeah. Or even though I failed, I did get something out of it. Right. Which is, I think, more to the point. Right. I think people identify success and failure too opaquely sometimes, but maybe opaquely yeah. is not the right word. But like, you really need to specifically look at what did I get out of that? And Mm -hmm. like, if I go to a job interview and I don't get the job, well, did I learn anything from the job interview? Did I learn anything about the company? Did I learn anything about interview processes or anything like that? Like, Mm -hmm. if I did, then that wasn't a complete failure. I got things out of it. There was value derived. Right. Yeah. But I do think this is especially useful in creative pursuits. It can be. Yeah. Yeah. Like something I've been thinking about in terms of those videos that I was talking about of creating, Uh like the one that is just about to be published, it's on procrastination. I talked about how I limited the length. And I think that's extremely valuable. But something that I want to do going forward at various times, and I'm not sure exactly how to go about this, but like these videos are animated that I'm creating. And so I want to limit what I allow myself to do in terms of the animation. Like I'm not hugely skilled in terms of animating anyway. Right. That's something that I'm using these videos to learn. Mm -hmm. But limiting myself in terms of saying, okay, I can only use grayscale on this video or I can only use circles on this video. Something like that. Uh It forces, again, that creativity. It forces you to figure out, well, how do I visualize this concept with only circles? That's not an easy thing to do necessarily. And while that may seem like you're making things unnecessarily difficult for yourself, Oftentimes, when you do that, you do create better things than you would create without any encumbrances, And it causes a lot more development and a lot more growth than you would certainly have when you can just fall back on all the things you're comfortable with and do all of the things that you've always done before. Yeah, definitely helps you learn new things. That is true. If nothing else. Yeah, at the very least. Minimum. Minimum. All right, you want to wrap it up, Mike? Yeah. 
Okay. All right, guys. So, you know, you can find this episode on our website, subjectradio.com, slash WWOTS, slash 016. Give us your money, patreon.com, slash WWOTS. If you want to support us, we'd really appreciate it. Yes, we very much would. And we'd love to hear from you guys. I'm sure you could reach out to us at subjectradio.com, or you can reach us at Twitter at underscore WWOTS. I know that's a lot of things, but mostly just listen to us and reach out to us. Yeah, we'd love to hear from you guys. We're always curious as to what you like, what you don't, anything you want us to talk about on the show. If one of us is more charming than the other, perhaps. (laughs) Perhaps. Perhaps. (laughs) I guess I'll see you next week, Mike, or talk to you next week. All right. Yes, that's when you'll talk to me, and I'll see you next week. (laughs) Yeah. All right. Bye. All right. Bye.